Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Support for MPB comes from Kyle Winn & Associates, an estate planning and elder law firm hosting estate planning and nursing home asset protection planning seminars in Jackson and Vicksburg throughout the month of September. Details at kyle-winn.com. Good morning. It's 8.30. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, using data to make long-term decisions on government and economic policy. Then, help for some Mississippi students to pay for advanced placement tests. Later, a new U.S. Labor Department rule on overtime faces opposition from small business owners. We'll find out why. And a look ahead at tonight's episode of At Issue on mosquito-borne illnesses. Since we know it's endemic in the state, we really want to try to stay ahead of it. And we want to keep putting up the message out that people need to do all they can to protect themselves against mosquitoes and mosquito bites. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Legislators, policymakers, and others are in Starkville today to discuss the use of data in setting public policy decisions. The 2016 Mississippi Data Summit is taking place at the Mill Conference Center at Mississippi State University. The summit is sponsored by NSPARC, the research center at MSU, devoted to the smart use of data when making public decisions. Carol Gifford, communications director of NSPARC at MSU, tells us the goal of the summit is to help Decision makers turn data into action. NSPARC is a research center at Mississippi State University, and we do things like research, teach, and serve our community, and do research that converts smart data into real time actionable intelligence. So, what we do is look at smart data and try to figure out how it makes sense in the real world. We're looking at areas such as economic development and education outcomes and workforce training. And we're looking at numbers of outcomes from the state. And then we research and talk about how these decisions that are made by state policymakers are effective. The summit focuses on those subjects you just mentioned. I want to ask you how data is gathered, how it's assimilated, how it's interpreted. We gather data through a number of different sources that we have partnerships with, including state agencies. So, for example, we're looking at data collected by the Mississippi Department of Education, and that includes data for K-12 education, community colleges, and also universities. So that would be things like testing scores, enrollment numbers, budget items, all of that? All of that, but we're specifically interested in outcomes. So we want to see, for example, 
how many students graduate from a specific program. And in the example of community colleges, what specific training program outcomes look like. So if students go through a training program and receive a credential, are they able to find jobs in that area? And that is all part of our workforce development for the state. Does all of the data come back to the state itself, the legislature, and actions that they take in relationship to this data? Sometimes it does, and it really depends on what kind of report we're looking at. We manage the state longitudinal data system for Mississippi, and there are certain things that we collect each year, and we have that as part of our database. And then there are custom reports that specific groups and individuals, and they could be state agencies or they could be other policymakers are interested in. So it could be an economic development analysis of a specific area of the state and what the workforce looks like there, what the education level is of the workforce, what workforce training programs are available for people to participate in, and what employers are available in that area of the state offering jobs to individuals. Do entities come to NSPARC and say, this is what we're researching, this is what we need data on, or is it uh, independently done by NSPARC? It is entities that come to NSPARC. We work with individuals who have research questions that they need answered. And so often our, the people that we work with are state agencies or they could be, for example, economic developers on a local level. Do you also include anecdotal information or is it strictly data? It's both in some studies. It really depends on the research that we're doing. So, for example, when we looked at the results of the Nissan Canton plan and did an economic analysis on what bringing that manufacturing facility to the area brought to our state, um, we also looked at research showing jobs that were offered and incomes that were earned, but we also then looked at social service agencies from that area and talked to them about what it meant to bring a large employer like Nissan Canton into the area. And for them, they were interested in also explaining that there were many benefits to the community. And that would be philanthropic things that Nissan was able to provide to the community. Who is the summit for and how many are you expecting? The summit is for policymakers and others interested in research in Mississippi. We're expecting more than 150 individuals, including state legislators, state legislative leaders, um, data researchers around the state, and economic developers and planners. Carol Gifford is the communications director for NSPARC at Mississippi State University. NSPARC stands for the National Strategic Planning and Analysis Research 
Center. The summit today is called Data Summit, Advancing the Use of Data for a Bright Mississippi Future. Carol, thank you very much for being with us. And thank you for having me. In other news, students enrolled in the free and reduced lunch program at Mississippi are eligible to use a federal grant to take advanced placement tests. MPB's Paul Boger reports. The U.S. Department of Education has announced a nearly $190,000 grant to the state to help boost college and career readiness for historically underserved students. The AP, or Advanced Placement Exam, is given to students at the end of the school year. By subsidizing the $90 test fee, education officials hope students will be able to earn college credit for high school courses, reducing the time and cost required to complete a post-secondary degree. Gene Massey is with the State Department of Education. We're trying to increase the number of students exposed to AP, and not just exposed to the class of AP, but also taking the exam so that we know that the students are truly getting a good AP experience in their school. Last year, approximately 2,000 students in Mississippi used the federal money to take the exam. Paul Boger, MPB News. Up next, a new U.S. Labor Department rule on overtime faces opposition from small business owners. We'll find out why. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. It's high school football time, and that means it's time for Friday night under the lights. Hello, everyone. I'm Russ Robinson. Join me, Jay White, Jake Wimberly, George Broadstreet, and the whole gang as we bring you all the scores and the stories that make up high school football across the state of Mississippi. So join us tonight at 10 o'clock right here on MPB Think Radio. Hey, y'all, it's Felder Rushing. I'm the Gestalt Gardener, and I am so pleased to join y'all every week talking about gardening. You know, you don't have to be anybody or join anything to be part of this party. All we're going to do is talk about gardening and garden-related stuff and maybe a little psychology working in at the same time. Let's have a lot of fun on the Gestalt Gardener. This morning at 9 on MPB Think Radio. After the sexual assault, then comes the shame, says a new documentary. The girls have all said to us, yes, of course, the sexual assault was horrible and traumatic and it's going to take them a long time to heal from it. But the worst part of what happened to them was the social media shaming. I'm Kelly McEvers, a preview of Audrey and Daisy on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Federation of Independent Business, and more than 50 business groups are suing the U.S. Department of Labor over its new mandatory overtime pay rule. The lawsuit is separate from the one filed by Mississippi Attorney General Jim Hood and 20 other state attorneys general and governors against the rule. In May, the Department of Labor issued the new rule saying workers making below $47,476 must be paid overtime. Steph Melito is senior executive counsel with NFIB. She says the new rule will hurt businesses across the country. 
Well, we've sued the U.S. Department of Labor to block its new overtime rule, and we're arguing that the agency's exceeded its authority by nearly doubling the overtime threshold. One of the things you're asking for is an extension of when this would be implemented? Well, we're asking um, the court, in short, to stop the rule. Um, We've also argued that the court has exceeded authority under federal law, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, by pushing through automatic updates every three years. So, again, in short, we're asking for the law to be stopped, um, to be voided, if you will. This was announced in May, mid-May, that this was coming up. Why sue now? The timing for small businesses, which I represent here at the National Federation of Independent Business, um, is very problematic. Um, I mean, businesses need to reorganize workforces, implement new systems, track hours. There's a lot they need to do to get into compliance with the new rule if it goes forward. And again, we're arguing that the Department of Labor doesn't have authority to implement the new rule as a whole. Um, So suing now before the rule goes into effect, um, I mean, that's why now. Advocates of this new rule say that it helps restore the middle class, that the middle class has been shrinking, Mm -hmm. that it's been more than a decade uh, at the level of $23,660, which is a pretty low level, and that it's been since the 1970s when 62% of salaried employees We're getting overtime, and that compares to 7% today. So what's wrong with helping the middle class get back into the middle class? Well, I'd argue that the rule is not necessarily going to help the middle class get back in the middle class. Um, The administration shouldn't pat themselves on the back about giving workers a raise. Um, Most small business owners that I've spoken with are going to have to limit employees' hours and career opportunities. So it's not going to put more money in workers' pockets necessarily. What it is going to do is require businesses to convert salaried workers to hourly workers. They're going to lose flexibility, in some cases lose pay, too. Um, Struggling businesses can't just afford to pay more in overtime because the Department of Labor says they should. Um, Businesses can only afford to pay more if they get more revenue, and this rule isn't going to give businesses more revenue. Won't it give businesses higher revenue when you have more money in the economy? We have more people spending money because they're making more money. No, I would argue it's not going to put more money in workers' pockets. I mean, the bottom line is you need increased sales, and... This is not going to increase sales. It's not going to increase revenue. I mean, there's not, you know, there's not a money tree in the backyard of the small business. Um, they can't just automatically, you know, flip a switch December one and pay more in overtime. That's why they're going to be converting salaried workers to hourly workers, and it's not necessarily going to result in more money in workers' pockets. It's going to be less flexibility for many workers. But that's what I'm saying. If the law went or the rule went into effect, and those who are working are making overtime. This is before a business is cutting hours because if, if if they're paying them the overtime that they've earned, thereby they're making more money to put into the economy, which should increase sales for that business. 
it's not going to increase sales. Just the payroll week of December one, businesses don't have more money. There's no money to start this off. I mean, you're you you know you're making kind of a cyclical argument there, but there's no more money. There's no more money. So come December one, again, the businesses with whom I'm talking are going to be making hard choices about either converting salaried workers to hourly or cutting hours. Um, hiring, you know, potentially more part-time workers, but probably doing more cuts and just taking on more themselves, the business owner taking on more themselves. Do you see this as a bipartisan fight? A bipartisan fight to stop the rule. I mean, there's certainly legislation that has bipartisan support with regards to extending the deadline for the new rule and also rolling back the um, the three-year automatic increase. So I think there is concern on both sides of the aisle with some components of the new rule. When do you expect action? Are you expecting an injunction or um, a trial to present evidence? How do you think this will play out? Um, we are certainly going to business groups that have sued over this are certainly going to push the court um, to the extent we can to make a ruling um, before the December 1 deadline. There are a number of states, I believe about 21 states that have also sued um, and they have asked for an injunction. Um, so it is our hope that we will get a ruling from the court before the December 1 deadline. Steph Melito is Senior Executive Counsel for the National Federation of Independent Businesses. Steph, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Up next, a look ahead at tonight's episode of At Issue on MPB TV. Tonight, mosquito-borne illnesses. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. I'm Jeremy Hobson. As our series on climate change concludes, we'll look at how public health suffers in a warming world. At least uh, a quarter million people are being affected by current climate change, and that's a low, a low estimate because that's just looking at a couple of diseases, malaria, malnutrition, and diarrheal disease. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MBB Think Radio. Coming up this week on MPB's At Issue, Zika and West Nile virus. West Nile virus and Zika virus are cousins. The new threat of Zika is raising concerns for mothers and unborn children. That little bit of virus is enough to make you really, really sick and in some cases kill people. While West Nile virus is an old enemy. I say, well, I've had West Niles and you don't want to wish this on your worst enemy. We'll take a closer look at Zika and West Nile virus on At Issue. Tonight at 7 on MPB TV. It's high school football time, and that means it's time for Friday night under the lights. Hello, everyone. I'm Russ Robinson. Join me, Jay White, Jake Wimberly, George Broadstreet, and the whole gang as we bring you all the scores and the stories that make up high school football across the state of Mississippi. So join us tonight at 10 o'clock right here on MPB Think Radio.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. As concerns over the Zika virus continue to grow in Mississippi and the West Nile virus infects more and more people, mosquito-borne illnesses remain a topic of conversation and concern. Tonight, MPB TV's At Issue takes a look at these diseases, their causes, their effects, and their potential preventions and cures. Wendy Renato is a public health entomologist with the State Department of Health. In this clip from tonight's show, she tells us much of her work takes her out of the field, out into the field to study West Nile in mosquitoes. We monitor every year. We set traps. We're looking. We know West Nile is pretty much here to stay, um, but we want to try to stay ahead of it. So we do sampling um, starting in the spring and try to see when West Nile gets here. We want to try to collect it in the mosquitoes before we start seeing West Nile show up in people. If we collect it and find it in the mosquitoes, then we're able to contact local mosquito control, and local mosquito control can go in and do. Um, abatement activities. It's statewide, although there are areas there, I mean, that we, we concentrate on. Um, West Nile is typically more of an urban mosquito. It's an urban disease. I mean, we typically uh, stick our sampling to, to more urban areas. This mosquito loves humans, where humans live, anything about humans. This mosquito, common name, is a southern house mosquito, and it gets that name for a reason. It loves to do anything, everything it can to get inside your home, and it's going to be most likely found breathing in containers around your home. We historically have had St. Louis encephalitis in the past. Um, we still see it every now and again. The same mosquito that transmits West Nile also transmits St. Louis. So killing, getting rid of breeding sites for West Nile mosquitoes, you're in a sense getting rid of breeding sites for St. Louis mosquitoes. We first go, go on historical data. We go by um, previous cases that we've had in the past, human West Nile cases. And, you know, we've had West Nile since 2002, so we've got 14, almost 14 years worth of data, um, of human data that we can use. And we will, we will try to gear our trapping towards those where we see the most human cases show up. Now, and, and that's typically the most urban areas, West Nile is everywhere throughout the state. So anyone throughout the state is at risk getting West Nile. We cannot know where anybody actually got bit by the mosquito that gave them West Nile. We don't know if, if that person was at home or not. Um, but we do have folks that live in rural areas that, that, that uh, test positive for West Nile virus. Well, West Nile is, is a, very, it's a very serious disease, and people that get it get, can get really, really sick. And it, since we know it's endemic in the state, we really want to try to stay ahead of it, and we want to keep putting up the message out that people need to do all they can to protect themselves against mosquitoes and mosquito bites. Setting traps for, for two reasons. One is I start setting traps, or we generally start setting traps earlier in the year to see when this mosquito starts emerging for the season. All mosquito species have seasons, okay, when they come out and when they go away. Um, we start seeing this mosquito pop out, you know, around May or so. So we're looking to see when the mosquito comes out, when its numbers are peaking. We're looking for abundance in this particular mosquito. And then we're also bringing those mosquitoes back that we collect, and we're then testing them for disease to see see if they're positive for West Nile. The larvae is just for yay or nay, are they there? Larval dipping is to see if they're there. And larval dipping is very important for abatement activities to know if you need to treat the place or not. We haven't had any mosquitoes come positive this year for West Nile thus far. And I believe right now, today, we have four human cases. It's just that we can't be everywhere throughout every area of the state. And so we test, like I said, we cover the most the areas where we've seen the most activity in the past. Generally, it's easier to detect it before 
people start getting it in the most urban areas because there's just so many more mosquitoes to collect. Our chances of picking it up just increase so much greatly. We did, that's, it's, it's a lot easier for us to do that. Well, West Nile, in all honesty, if you look at the historical, it really is kind of an up and down. You see, you see peaks and you see valleys in it. It's kind of cyclical and you'll just have up years and down years. The local districts, local mosquito you know, control folks, they're always doing what they can to combat mosquitoes. They don't base what they do on, on our data. They're constantly doing routine mosquito control, routine larvicide and things to reduce the mosquito numbers in general. We're always gonna have this mosquito and you should always be, be doing your best to eliminate it. West Nile is here I and mean, it's in your backyard. There's West Nile transmission going on as we speak between mosquitoes and bird populations. So West Nile is actively circulating right now. We have we currently have human cases of West Nile this season. Um, so it's best to be worried about for sure diseases that you know are occurring and circulating right here and right now where you live. That's Wendy Vernado, a public health entomologist with the State Department of Health in the clip from tonight's At Issue on MPB TV. To learn more about mosquito-borne illnesses in the state, be sure to tune into At Issue. It's tonight at 7.30. Coming up after Mississippi Edition, Gestalt Gardner, Next Stop Mississippi, and Southern Remedy for Women. And remember, if you want to catch the show outside the broadcast, just search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app and listen whenever you like. It's easy. I'm Karen Brown. I hope you have a great weekend and that you'll join us again Monday morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi Museum presenting The Beautiful Mysterious, The Extraordinary Gaze of William Eggleston, featuring a scholar symposium Friday, October 7th, that's open to the public. Additional details at museum.olemiss.edu. It's Marketplace Tech for Friday the 20th.